Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland, of course, and using German advisedly, uh, or, or not, as we'll find out. Inadvisedly. Inadvisedly. <laughs> Who are we talking to today, James? Uh, we're talking to Katja Hoyer, and we're very excited about this. Katja is a German historian. Um, she's written the hugely acclaimed and well-received Blood and Iron, which is the rise and fall of the German Empire from 1871 to 1918. So the Second Reich rather than the Third Reich. But um, she knows lots about everything and all things German. Um, and we're absolutely delighted that you've you've come on. And Katja, I should also say that you've been living in Britain, haven't you, for the last 10 years, you know, down in Sussex. Um, and um, you are most welcome on the podcast. Oh, thank you for um, inviting me. Uh, um, you in East Grinstead, somewhere like that? Yeah, yeah, in Sussex at the moment. Um, so very oh. much um, settled. The idea was really only to come over, do what all good foreigners do, use the education system and, and go again. And uh, <laughs> then, you know, before you know it, you live in a house, you got a cat and <laughs> you're settled in lovely Sussex. So, yeah, ah, lovely part of the world. Fantastic. Um, I've just I've just read Blood and Iron. I mean, it, um, uh, uh, oh, not this weekend, the weekend before. Um, and I absolutely I absolutely loved it. Uh, and it did the did the job of filling in a, a lot of the gaps and and also. Also colouring in some of the things that, that you know, that, that, that maybe one ought to know when you're talking about the Second World War. Because after all, th- th- there's been a lot of debate, hasn't there, in the historiography and in, in history about, you know, Hitler as the continuity character in German politics and in German history, or as, or as the anomaly, or, as the, or Hitler as the Democrat, um, uh, and where he actually fits in to the to the cycle of, you know, what well, cycle's the wrong word, but the, pr- the progression of events that arguably come from Bismarck. And I was really fascinated by principally the idea that when Bismarck sticks Germany together, democracy is new and newfangled. And the point you make is that, is that what, 50% of the people entitled to vote, of the franchise vote. And if you're, a, if you're a pro-democratic, you look at that as a failure. But if you look at it from the other point of view, actually that's a that's a pretty good result for Bismarck. So I thought that that was the really interesting thing is Germany getting to grips to, with democracies, the sort of one of the really interesting things about the Second Reich. And then plainly, the thing that happens after the Second Reich, that, that G- Germany trying to dissolve the idea or get to grips with democracy. I found that incredibly thought provoking. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the points I'm trying to make is that democracy doesn't come out of nowhere you know, after the First World War, suddenly people realise the error of their ways, the Kaiser needs to go. Um, and there's this German revolution in 1918. And there we are with wonderful Weimar, which then gets destroyed by the Nazis. Um, yeah. And that 
seems to me the traditional narrative there. But I would I just wanted to highlight with the book that there is a fair degree of democracy before 1914. And whilst, as you say, the first election in 1871 has got a relatively low turnout of 50 percent, um, you know, let's not forget that that is the first election, pan-German election um, ever. And also urbanization was a lot, lot slower in, in Germany than it has been elsewhere. And so people are just, you know, finding the whole logistics behind voting, all of that still quite difficult. But that rises pretty quickly to, to impressive figures during the, the Reich, where you get sort of 70, 80 percent people voting, which, you know, even compared to today is uh, a decent turnout. Because, because the new Germany, there's an acceleration, isn't there, in the second, the second decade of, of urbanisation, industrialization, which then engages people politically enormously because because Bismarck's created this. With, 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 his, with his parliament, he's created an opportunity for political engagement and people grab it, don't they? And in a way, he probably wasn't expecting. No, absolutely. And I think one of the, the features that you see consistently throughout this period, and even today still as well, is, is that Germans like voting. They, they like expressing their political opinions, whatever they may be, in a sort of legal format. So if you give them a, a range of choices, people are happy to turn up and, and vote. Even during the Weimar Republic, where people are eventually supposedly fed up with democracy you still see fairly high turnout um at the elections which to me suggests that you know people want to have a legal and formal way in a way to express their political opinions as opposed to not voting or going out on the streets and, and expressing their opinions sort of outside the the political system if you were this is after all that i mean we james, james and i we've, we've talked about this before because when you get to hitler uh, uh, and people like to remind themselves of this. That, oh, he did actually win elections. And uh, and of course, p- electoral performance peaks and then is beginning to sort of go downhill, isn't it? At the point where he decides to take power rather than um, uh, be granted it, as it were. Do, do we think that there's an appetite? Because you, I mean, you, you, what you're saying there directly contradicts the idea that, that um, uh, Germans are fed up with democracy. Do we think then that Hitler is this sort of radioactive version of democracy, giving people what they want? You know, he's a sort of First World War mutant product of, of democracy. Not to go fully intentionalist, but he does, he does say what he's going to do. He does offer it as a manifesto. People vote for it and then he starts to do it. And that's, I mean, that's quite unusual for politicians, isn't it? It's to, to, uh, <laughs> to deliver on the thing they say they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, there is an element of that. And it worries me every time that <clears throat> the German government now and in recent years, every time <clears throat> there's something left or right of the political spectrum that they're uncomfortable with, immediately there's a debate, does it need to be banned? Uh, you know, now, of course, around the AFD and the, the watching of, of the AFD. Yeah. Uh, but you also had it with the KPD ban after the war, um, you know, with the Communist Party effectively being banned. So there, there is an element yeah. there, I think, that, that Germany has got a tendency to, to worry that people might vote for things that they might want, but they shouldn't want, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. And Hitler, yeah. Hitler I suppose, suppose, is an extreme example. But as you say, he was never elected um, by the majority of Germans. They, they were the largest party, the NSDAP, but it was never yeah. over 50 percent. And Hitler knows that it peaked in the first election of, of 1932 and from then onwards kind yeah. of, you know, as you say, takes power because he, he's worried that he might not get it legally. Um, yeah. But I do think if there is any continuity between the, the Second Reich and the Third um, or the emergence of the Third, it's perhaps the um, fact that Germans do have a tendency not to trust democracy in crisis, in times of crisis, I think, to deliver. Um, that's not specifically, I would say, just Germany. I mean, you see this elsewhere as well, where people go for the 
sort of more authoritarian options the moment they think yeah. like decisions need to be made. But when you think how strong democracy was in in 1914 with half of the parliament, literally half the parliament full of um, liberals and, and social democrats, and yet there's an enabling act signed, you know, the moment the war breaks out and they just roll over and go, there you go, have all the yeah. power during the war. Uh, we think decisions need to be made quickly and surely this this whole democratic thing isn't working during during wartime. And that, of course, leads to, you know, the extreme in, in 1916 when you've got the third OHL effectively turning Germany into a dictatorship during the war. Um, yeah. And people like to forget but, but, about that. <laughs> you know, in the Second World War in this country, uh, elections are suspended. A national government, a coalition national government's formed where basically... There's some there's, there's there's sort of uh, every now and again someone gets up in Parliament and says something off colour. But democracy is also suspended here. And we don't like we, we don't like to say that we like to say that we were fighting for democracy. But at the, but at, at that time, we also considered it um, <laughs> sort of a luxury or, or something and that, you know, I think that's that, that's not an ex, that's not exceptionally German, is it? To, to say, right, OK, the, the, the shit's really hit the fan here. So we're going to have to suspend things for the moment. Is it is it, James? It's not not uh, unusual. I mean, no, no, not not abso- absolutely not at all. The point I think is really, really interesting is that if demo- democracy is sort of does does seem to be kind of more advanced in Germany than we kind of often give it credit for uh, up to 1933. And one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating is, is that, you know, we just assume that the whole of the 1920s, you know, Germany was just in turmoil, everything was going down the swan, you know, wheelbarrows of, of, of you know, overinflated money and all the rest of it. And obviously that period in the early part of the 1920s sort of does disappear. And in the second half of the 1920s, up to the Wall Street crash of 1929, actually Germany's sort of doing OK, isn't it? I mean, or am I wrong about that? I mean, you know, democracy is working. The Weimar is OK. They're kind of sort of trying to rebuild the nation as a nation of engineers and manufacturing and all the rest of it, which is incredibly sensible. And and which actually is the course that West Germany takes post-war and, and which Germany's taken to this day. You know, and, and there is this great heritage of um, admiring technology and engineers in Germany and before Germany, Prussia. I mean, you know, you've got Johann Tuller, haven't you, who straightened the Rhine famously. You've got all those designers who designed the dams, the great dams, the kind of sort of conquest of nature, all this kind of stuff. I mean, the, these people were kind of household names to any kind of German child in the kind of 1920s uh, and indeed in the in the teens. And yet... That doesn't seem to work because suddenly you've got the Great Depression. You know, Germany has been bolstered by American loans, which are then cut off after 1929. And so if democracy and industrialization and um, manufacturing don't work, then what's the alternative? Well, the, uh, an alternative is extreme nationalism and militarism and Hitler, I suppose. I mean, is, is that roughly right, Catcher, or have I completely barking up the wrong tree on that No, one? I think I'll, I'll, I'll be on the same lines with that, especially as you get this kind of, as you say, pride in, in German engineering that meets with the American um, techniques, I suppose, that are introduced in the, in the 1920s. So they don't just, you know, throw a lot of money in, at Germany in the doors plan and go, there you go, you do what you want with it. Um, but there are, you know, entrepreneurs and people like that sent to Germany who introduce things like, um, you know, assembly line technology and that kind of stuff to Germany. So in a way, you get this, this industrialization gets a, a boost with, you know, American 
capitalism being added to the mix of German engineering, if you will. So that works reasonably well, but even by sort of 1927, 28, you begin to see the cracks in, in that as well, because it's still not a genuine rebuilding of the economy, but it's completely propped right. up by that American money. Like the entire, you know, we were talking briefly earlier about the agricultural sector, but that entire sector is, is being left behind and, and being economically as well as uh, culturally and otherwise. There's a third of the population sat there with no part in all of that development and you can't just ignore that. It's just a structural imbalance yeah. in the economy that yeah. eventually I think would have led to to problems one way or another just by overproduction and, and by not modernising that sector, I think. So there were severe cracks. Unemployment is a huge problem before 1929 as well. I mean, it is also, it's really interesting that even on the eve of of war sort of posters nazi posters from 1939 or 1940 talking about kind of you know agriculture and the fields and stuff it's got a sort of a big hale and hearty muscular chap but he's holding a scythe you know whereas in britain that would be a guy on a tractor you know it is really noticeable how different it is and demic i suppose of just how far german agriculture has been you know agriculture and, and rural population has been left behind yeah the investment that came through first the doors plan and then the young plan was very specific in the way that it could be invested so basically like i said they didn't just dump a, a pile of money onto germany and said do what you will with it um but it was specifically targeted at industries where the investors you know wanted their return back in that in that sense so very little of that you know people didn't sit there in america and said oh i really fancy investing in german grain that that just didn't didn't happen and so you get this entire like i said about a third of the population um excluded from the progress you know culturally and, and economically that was made so is that does that then um uh you know it's a fashionable a fashionable political phrase um of the last few years has been the idea of the left behind there are sectors of the population that get left behind. They tend to end up voting Trump. There's people who imagine themselves left behind in America and who were attracted to him. Who are the left behind? Are the, is the agricultural sector then the left behind in Germany? And is that partly who the NSDAP are, are, are tilting at, that Hitler's considering them? Or, you know, what's his... Because after all, we, if, if we're going to put democracy back into the picture here, Hitler, after all, plays the, the role of a Democrat until he, until he decides he doesn't have to anymore. So he's courting electorates. He's, he's tailoring policy and, uh, uh, and offers to the population. Who's he playing to? How is he going about that? And, and you know, does he, is he directly appealing to agriculture? Because after all, we, we think of industry and the Nazi party being in bed together, don't we? Once they're a government. What's he doing for agriculture or, or, or women or, I don't know, uh, small businesses and all that sort of thing? Well, the thing I think why it works is that he appeals to all of these people and they are the only political party that does that. So every other party targets usually one specific um, economic group. And by yeah. when, when Hitler decided to rename the party from, you know, the German Workers' Party, right right at the beginning, really, straight after yeah. the, um, straight after he sort of, you know, takes over leadership of it, um, into the National Socialist um, German Workers' Party. He's got National Socialist workers in there, um, yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden covering an entire political spectrum that other political parties just didn't think of. Women, um, they are the only political party that realises that since 1918, women have got the vote and they are 50% of the electorate. And actually, when you look at the figures, initially, they don't turn up to elections in the same, on the same scale that men do, largely because Germany is still a, a traditional society where a lot of women themselves don't think they, they have any role to play on the political field. Um, 
or they vote, you know, whatever their husbands voted for and they just go in and, you know, make their tick in the mm. same box. Um, and the Nazis specifically start bringing out election posters, target that group, mainly again with very conservative messaging, but that works because people, women in particular, are worried about income, about stability, about economic safety for their families, and, and they deliberately go out and, and support that. A lot of women also feel quite, um, I wouldn't say threatened, but certainly they, this idea of the modern woman being something that appeals to all women in Germany in the 1920s is just not the case. It's a very small fraction of, of the urban middle class um, yeah. you know, milieu, effectively. They like that. But there are loads of women who just feel outright threatened by that, you know, in their role as, as mothers and, and housewives and, and traditional kind of housekeeping you know, uh, capacity. You're now being told that it would be much better if you put on a nice dress and, and hang out in a bar and, you know, smoking and drinking. And they neither want that <laughs> nor do they think it's, it's something that, you know, they should want. And so, you know, the Nazis appeal to the conservative element within German women, of which there were many, um, as well. And then lastly, I mean, the, the main, uh, as is well known now, the, the main uh, spectrum of people voting for the Nazis were, of course, the, the middle classes, and they're just outright frightened of, of communism or what might happen if the left behind yeah, get further right. left behind. So they're more, yeah. more concerned about the consequences of that. It's actually the German working classes that are underrepresented in the, in the voting spectrum of the Nazis, which is interesting. So it's not so much the left behind that are voting for them, it's the people that are worried about what the left behind people might do that start yeah. voting for the Nazis. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, Gosh, but, 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 fascinating. Agricultural workers are voting for Nazis, Yeah, aren't they? they are, yeah, in their droves. Um, if it's quite embarrassing, really, for me, because I'm just, um, I'm from Brandenburg, which is just outside of Berlin, and when you look at a map of, um, like, Nazi votership, and, and there is one... Um, sort of the, the most used one is, is just like shades of brown and, and how many people voted for the for the Nazis basically. So the darker the brown colour, the more people voted for it. And the area where I'm from is, is like deepest, darkest brown simply because it's, it's so <laughs> agricultural. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Oh, gee, yeah. <laughs> uh, simply because it is agricultural and, and entirely felt, you know, because it was just right. outside of Berlin as well. They were looking at Berlin with a degree yeah. of you know, this is depraved and, and modernist and um, kind of... So moving. setting the... So, so country versus city in that respect. Yeah. The, 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 yeah. Town versus but, country, that, that old idea, really. But there's another point about about, about the kind of rural vote and about, about agriculture and Germany in, the, in between the wars. And that is obviously so such a big part of the ideology of, of Hitler and the Nazis is this idea of, of, of living space, of kind of having to create more. But if... If rural Germany had been more developed, do you think that would have been a more of a hollow, kind of uh, a, a, a more hollow kind of sort of political concept? I mean, would you have needed all the Le the Lebensraum if 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 agriculture was more advanced, if you could provide more food yourself as a nation? It's quite a complex concept that goes beyond like food food production. I mean, if you look at this obs obsession that Germany's always had with expanding eastwards. Like, go, go right back to Bismarck. If he's saying that Germany can't have a colonial empire because that would threaten, um, effectively, the empires of Britain and France, and he establishes Germany as a, as a, as a um, continental superpower, you can't go further westwards. There, there's France there. That's just not possible. But all of the areas that are contested between um, Prussia and Poland, um, moving you know eastwards, Austria, of course, always still on, on people's minds. Why is that not part of Germany? So this eastwards move is as much part of this whole Virgush ethnic German movement, you know, of, of having a, a greater Germany, as it were, 
you know, as it is about pragmatic, like having land and having yeah. having facilities to to grow food. Sure, yeah. but is it? But is but so is Hitler tapping into something that's already there then? Yeah, absolutely. In that respect, so this kind of you know looking eastwards, I, I think, goes way back than than that. Even when you look at during the First World War, this whole argument between you know the Eastern Front, Western Front. Yes, it's a military argument, but there's also always an underlying issue of sort of colonizing the east whilst france was always su- just supposed to be you know sort of beaten and then uh, and then left to be france but you know in the east there was actual conquest on the cards uh, which is you know that that argument has existed for a long time this raises a question then um one of the points you make in your book which i think is really really interesting is that that the, the second reich comes undone because of the because of the first world war that that, that it, it throws its flaws into into the open and then losing the war is, is a result of this, but also nevertheless catalyzes the the idea of a Germany. And you'd think that the Second Reich loses the war because of its weaknesses. So you'd think it would collapse. So you'd think it might fall in on itself, but it doesn't. And in fact, exits the First World War in a, in a strange way, forged through the adversity and you get a stronger idea of a Germany. And then... Is Hitler continuity with Bismarck in terms of Lebensraum and Eastern conquest and he's dealing with France politically? There's still a Germany now, right? This is, the, this is where I'm going with this. How on earth do you deal with this in the historiography? If this is the same Germany that was forged by the First World, by Bismarck, then by the experience of losing the First World War, then the crises of the 20s and 30s and the losing the Second World War, then, the, then of course... The partition of Germany and the reunification. How do you write about this now if you're a German historian? How do you thread these things together? Because if the justification for the existence of a Germany that we have now is a country that's been through all these multiple things with all these strange ideas built into them, like expansion Eastern. How do you write about this now as a German? What's the what's the historiographical scene in in Germany. Well, if if when people ask me why I'm interested in this, that's normally the answer that I give. So what you just said is kind of the oh, this, this right. very fragmented. Um, you know, there there isn't a national narrative. That that's what I find fascinating about sort of my country's history is that you cannot draw a line from its origin to where we're now in in a nice neat. I know that's not necessarily needful for Britain and and France either, but there's certainly more of a continuity there of a story there to tell whereas for germany as you say you get these like chunks and yes of course there's continuity between them in the in the way that actions have consequences and and you see those consequences but there isn't um you can't go back to 1871 and say this is where it started and and you know look at this kind of slow and and reasonably um coherent development then but german history comes in these sort of segments almost um yeah where, where a lot of very dramatic stuff happens but many people have called the uh, first world war sort of the the ur catastrophe the you know the origin story really or the the big bang of of german nationhood in many ways you could argue that um because it certainly is is the trauma that compounds i think nationhood because germans do go through this incredibly um you know devastating catastrophic development in terms of casualties in terms of the humiliation and, and all of that and what comes out of it is is a shared amount of grief and anger um and you know a willingness or or a desire to go on from there and do something else and i think of course hitler is able to tap into that um but it's more complex than just to say that this catastrophe then led to the led to the nazis naturally 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so how do you, how have people written about this? What have they written? How, you know, Hitler aside, how do you place Germany in the German story? Yeah, I mean, that's... Because a lot of emphasis is on how do you place Hitler in Germany's story. Well, let's forget about him for a minute. And how do you place Germany in the German story? German historians don't, by and large. That's one of the main reasons why I wanted to write this book is because, you know, 1871, uh, the, the anniversary this year, 150 years, you know, comes and goes without much mention in Germany because people just don't know what to do with it. Um, I don't think that's a desire in terms of, you know, that there's a desire to just look away from that and, and kind of brush it under the carpet. I don't think that's it. I think there's just not really a sense of, you know, what do you make of it now? Do you celebrate it? Do you do you shun it? Do you uh, sit there and say this is the worst thing that ever happened? It's quite easy to do that with. So we had the 30th anniversary of the fall of the of the Berlin Wall, of course, recently yeah. as well and the unification of Germany. And that's, of course, a complete success story. So people sit there and say, here we go, 30 years of unified Germany. The end of history was then, and now look where we are. That That's fine. But what do you do with 150 years of, you know, the, the ups and downs that we've seen? You can't sit there and, like I said, celebrate Bismarck or not. Or, you know, it's, there, there is no straight way of doing it. So I but think that, people just that, avoided it. But that's so paradoxical, isn't it? Because after all, the thing you're celebrating, you're reunifying in... 30 years ago is the yes. thing that was formed 150 mm. years ago like what's the, the, the gosh what so it's, it's, because... it's yes it's okay 30 years ago but it isn't 150 mm. I mean that, that doesn't make sense <laughs> at all does it really that that seems to me though the way that people have dealt with it I've always found it weird as a as an East German as well when anniversaries of you know 1949 come up and it's sort of Adenauer was our first chancellor and I'm sort of looking at it going, no, he wasn't my first chancellor. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you make that happen? Um, you know, because you've got this East-West story coming into it as well. And, and to what extent is stuff that happened before all of our history is, is stuff that happened in West Germany in the 1960s, 70s, say, is that my history as an East German or not? You know, it's, it's, it's a complicated picture because everyone sort of takes out of it what they will but it's always fractions of german history as opposed to one um sort of overarching picture how do you feel german germans are today i mean are most germans proud of being german happy to be german or, or i mean you know i think most most brits are generally speaking pretty happy to be british i think for the most part i mean not everyone of course but um I don't know, really. It's a hard one to... to I, I don't think... I think that shame is begin, from the Second World War is beginning to dissipate a little bit because people have now, I think, dealt with it so thoroughly. And I think that is one of the things that I'm quite... Um, I wouldn't say proud of, but certainly is something I think that Germans have got right, the way that they've dealt with the, with the Second World War so thoroughly, certainly since the 70s and 80s and, and into the 90s. Um, and I think because of that, there's now a sense that you know, that's being dealt with. And, and I think that the sense of shame is, is gone and replaced by a, a sense of we need to keep the memory of this alive. But I, don't, I still don't think that people are very conscious of anything that happened before the Second World War. When you think the obsession that this country has, the UK has with the First World War, that is just that just doesn't exist in Germany. It's always in the Does shadows. it not at all? Um, it's recently because of the, I would say because of the, the centenary, it's, it's probably had a little bit more attention but i don't think it shares the fascination and obsession that you know people in this country have with it because the second world war has just overshadowed it for such a long time so really mm. most german history that you get taught in school again you know just like here as well with german history starts in 1918 
um, looking at why the Nazis came to power and, and you know, the history since then. And what about history further back? I mean, do, you know, do German school children study the Thirty Years' War and all that kind of you stuff? You see, that's a problem as well. What do you do with somebody like Luther, you know, Martin Luther? Um, <laughs> I, again, where I'm from in the north, where we're supposed to be Protestant, that doesn't really work because of 40 years of, of atheism being put on top of hundreds of years of, of Protestantism. So you have, okay, you know, we've got Reformation Day as a day off, but they don't get it as a national holiday because it isn't a national holiday. They don't get it in Bavaria. So there used to be, for instance, these really funny uh, like phone pranks <laughs> on German radio where if you had a Catholic friend who lived in, say, Bavaria, you've got the day off. Um, sorry, the other way around, they, they would do that in Bavaria. So we've got the day off. So you could like phone somebody at six o'clock in the morning because you know it's a national, it's a holiday, a public <laughs> holiday in a Protestant area, but it's not in a Catholic area and vice versa. So you could basically call somebody that you know is still in bed and, and tell them, haha, <laughs> it's your day off, so I'm, I'm going to you. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that and you're not going to get a Bavarian to celebrate you know, like Reformation Day, say, for example, and neither are you going to get um, any of the Catholic holidays specifically in the in the north. So even further back, German history is so fragmented that certain things can be celebrated by certain people, but not by others. And it, it just lacks the continuity and cohesion as a national story that you, you get elsewhere. You know, when you th- when you think of British views of, of, of Germany, that would People don't know this, don't know the... They've always assumed there was a Germany, I think, mm. probably. Don't realise that, that it, you know, that it's the all, the all these places spilling out of the Holy Roman Empire for us. You know, that, that there's a there's always been a Germany, hasn't there? Um, in our minds, I think, at least. You see, that struck me as really old when I did my citizenship test here. And they ask you things like, uh, when was the Battle of Bosworth and stuff like that? And I thought, yeah. I kind of thought, what would a German equivalent actually look like? Which, you know, which dates would you, uh, or which kind of specific events would you pick out to ask people that kind of apply to be German, you know, because you sort of assume that they're so central in your national history that everyone should know them. I mean, you could argue about the Battle of Bosworth, whether that fits the bill, but it's certainly something that is important in the history of this country and would be deemed to be so by many people, whereas... Like in Germany, like I said, which states do you pick? If you pick something like Martin Luther and you're sat in, you know, Munich trying to be a, a German but a Bavarian at the same time, that just wouldn't be as important to your particular, you know, way of, of viewing the national yeah. history as it would to yeah, somebody sure. elsewhere. I'm struck by, uh, so you're from, you're, you're from Brandenburg, which voted very, like you say, vote, vote, super brown on the map when you look at the, the, the voting and then ends up part of um, a communist state. What on earth is going on in people's heads um uh you know what what kind of mindset adjustment was required for people to to go from being yeah i mean how do you cope with that in the late 40s and 50s well, and 60s well, uh, uh, well and then how do you cope with it now in the you know in the in the post ddr era what 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 on earth what on earth's going on well if you look at it now it's basically reflective i think of of both of those things still because you know in many ways the the problems haven't stopped going away so you yeah. know many brandenburg villages are completely deserted because there's just no employment no like, yeah. perspectives for people there so they leave and because of that you see quite extreme voting tendency still and, and that's been the same all the way through since since 1990 really where people vote um for what first was the, was the PDS, now it's the Die Linke party, which is like the successor, yeah. well, that's probably a bit controversial. But many, many people that are in that party were former SEDs or former Socialist uh, Unity Party yeah. members. That was the main party in the in the GDR. 
and voted as for that as a as a continuity party really but then you also get very very high you know figures for the AFD and before that for for neo-nazi parties and and things like that compared to to other states so it's always had these two you know sort of strands if you will um of voting very extreme left and and right in in many ways um so that hasn't really gone away i mean after the war when you when you speak to people that were around them my own family are a bit, are a bit more sort of far strewn so my my uh, grandparents grew up in, in saxony and thuringia respectively being driven out of what used to be like poland and, and eastern europe effectively in the yeah. in the post-war era so they're they're not from brandenburg um but when you speak to older people there you get the sense that you know they felt very much like they were being sort of conquered by a very hostile foreign power in in 1945 and and felt a sense of um you know we've lost this war and now what what else are we going to lose so there was complete pessimism about the future whilst you know in the in the west people come get around to the idea that the americans and, and british occupation forces yes run the country with a very strict hand but nonetheless are there to to rebuild with uh sort of you know german collaborators like adenauer himself who who are willing yeah. to work with them um so that becomes a partnership pretty quickly whilst in the east it remains a sort of relationship of the victor you know versus the, the the vanquished if you will does that pass when does that feeling change in in east germany towards does towards it? russia i don't think it ever did simply because they they were still taking you know resources out east germany paid 99 percent of all german war reparations of the of the second world war because the russians kept taking stuff you know yeah. down to the fact where they were ripping like copper cables out of the ground and dismantling like yeah. train tracks and Goodness. stuff like that yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there was yeah. always a sense that you know they were trying to build stuff and rebuild, but it was taken away. Um, whole factories yeah. dismantled, scientists abducted and, and taken to Russia, and all of that kind of stuff. The only time I'd say that that changes slightly is perhaps under Khrushchev, um, when he sort of introduced yeah. the this whole de-Stalinization uh, program and actually told. Yeah the GDR authorities to, you know, sort of get a grip and, and be a bit nicer to their people because otherwise this is all going to to fall apart. So I think at that point people felt a bit of a sense of, you know, they're here to help with the 1953 uprising in Germany being particularly close to actually being a revolution. And then, yeah. you know, that's straight after Stalin's death and Khrushchev comes in and sort of says, you know, can we can we do something here? Your people seem to be pretty <laughs> unhappy yes, for some I think reason. Because I think that I think the thing that the, the image that maybe people have the DDR is isn't of this considerable political turmoil. Certainly, in its first in its first decade, isn't there's real turmoil and mass strikes and and all sorts of all sorts of upheaval with people really not happy at all about the government they're under. Because I think we we I think the image we have of it is it is of sort of a, a cowed population and the Stasi and and all that sort of stuff, rather than actually people being pretty resistant to the whole thing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And especially in, in 1953, because it starts with workers in Berlin. So it's on the, interestingly enough, on the, yeah. in the Stalin Alley in Berlin. Um, yeah. So, you know, aptly named in that sense. Um, and because people were genuinely hoping that with Stalin's death, something new would actually happen and, and the regime might yeah. change. And 
you know, you get the regime under Ulbricht just sitting there, Walter Ulbricht, that is the, the uh, leader of the GDR, who's, who just sits there and says, no, actually, we do need you to work even harder, even longer hours for even less pay. And people just get fed up with that. And then the, the workers there are uh, joined by students everywhere, university students, intellectuals, and then everyone just kind of looks out of their window and goes, what's happening? <laughs> okay, I'm in. Yeah. Um, you know, and you get, get this very broad and... and East Germany wide movement of, um, you know, people storming like local party offices and that kind of thing, throwing typewriters out of the window. Yeah. And it frightened the GDR government, but they weren't entirely sure what to do. Ulbricht in this typical Ulbricht way just went, no, let's just suppress it all because surely people are going to get a grip eventually. Um, and Khrushchev is very reluctant to help him, but realizes if he doesn't uh, prop up the, this East German regime, it's going to fall. Um, yep. And it's at that point that he reluctantly sends like tanks and troops in to, to help, yeah. um, which then creates the image, as you say, of a very cowed East German population suppressed by, by Russian tanks when it's actually Ulbricht's obstinacy to not talk to the, to the, representative of, of the representatives of that movement yeah. and, and do something. And how do people write about this? That as well? because I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I mean, obviously, the Second World War is a sort of black hole at the the the, the heart of the German twentieth century, isn't it? And must be incredibly difficult to to write about. But the consequences that all if all things you know if all things don't spring from eighteen seventy one, then they surely spring from thirty nine to forty five. How do you write about the East now? As is that also a sort of aberrant chapter in German history, or is that? How does it? How does that fit? Well, what annoys me about that a little bit is that German historians had a tendency, because it's largely written by West German historians, in, yeah. in my opinion, the, the history of East Germany. So you get this, um, they, they forget that they're not neutral people. I mean, they've, they've sat on the right. other side of the border for 40 years. I still get asked sometimes, you know, did you have like running water? Did you have bathtubs? Were there cars in East Germany? Like, <laughs> you know, it's not a third world country. It did have the highest yeah. living standards in the Eastern Bloc and wasn't, you know, certainly in terms of car ownership and that, those kinds of things wasn't, yeah. um, you know, a developing country. Um, so, you know, they still view East Germany in that light. And it's very much a, a history of the two dictatorships. So they quite often like to, you know, co compare and contrast it directly with with the Nazis and it's, it's sort yeah. of falls in, in this German dictatorships bracket of, of the way that it's it's taught whether the Stasi is directly compared to the Gestapo the, you know Ulbricht basically becomes a, a dictator figure which he was of course but you know in, in a completely different way to, to something yeah. like Hitler so yes there is that that problem with it as well but catch it well I mean what what drew you to this subject in the first place I mean what what made you want to kind of go beyond what you learned at school and and actually take the look at this sort of academically and start writing books about all this well precisely that mess that we've just been talking about I'm just keen to see <laughs> if, if if there can be a, a national narrative I mean that's why you know I cover so much historical ground with it as well I'm interested in Napoleon I'm interested in you know, the, these kind of 200 years of when you could argue that there is a concept of German as first developing with, you know, well, the Napoleonic Wars all the way to now, where you still see the fractionalism of, of Germanness. I'm just interested, you know, to, to try and make sense of the whole thing to see if, the, if there mm. are, you know, common strands or, or continuities there. Well, after all, this is all, this is, uh, you could all argue that this is all the fruit of the French Revolution in the first place, <laughs> isn't it? It's that, it's that, it's that nationalism is a product of the French Revolution for all its, because nationalism, after all, for most of the 19th century is a progressive idea, is an idea that steps you outside the conservative ideas of, of, uh, of, of uh, crown authority, 
um, uh, creates a citizen who has a, a, a contract with a nation. It's a, it's a completely progressive idea for the 19th century. Comes directly from the French Revolution. The, the crea- creation of the French citizen, you know, who after all has to do military service and so on and all that sort of thing. These are all these are all super left wing progressive ideas in the in the late um, eight, in the late eighteenth century, and they become that in the nineteenth century. The eighteen forty eight revolutions are all are all responses to the French Revolution, national different national responses. So you could argue this is all the fault of the French. That's where I'm. That's going. the yeah, that, that's my main <laughs> I'm all with you on that one. <laughs> um, no, I do think. Uh, I mean, Germans are obsessed with the French Revolution as well. When I was at school, I learned about it. I don't know three, four times. It was in my A level uh-huh. examination. It started in year seven, and you know, it was it was there all the time. Um, and I think that obsession doesn't come out of nowhere either. I think people have drawn the same conclusion that that you've drawn. In the sense that that German nationalism, to some extent, is a result of um, certainly the nineteenth century century variety of it is a is a result, I think, of the French Revolution. You know, on the side of the people that want German nationalism, as much as on the other side of the people who are who are frightened of it and are fighting it, and and the conflict of the two, I think, you know, leads to a lot of the developments in the 19th century and the and the things that follow from that well what i was gonna say is talk about education and stuff i mean i think it's really interesting because um uh, and obviously in british schools there's an awful lot of there's a little bit of kind of home front and stuff and 1940 but basically you know what you're 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 taught is i I imagine is pretty much exactly the same as you're taught in germany which is you know rise of the nazis you know league of nations versailles uh um why hitler came to power and then it all stops in 1939 yeah, uh, and I just find it absolutely extraordinary. Why? Why is there no interest in learning about the conduct of the war? Is it because the people at the Department of Education in Britain and indeed in Berlin go, yeah, well, if you're interested in that, you're going to read about it later on in life anyway. So what's the point of doing it now? Or, or is it just? I mean, w- w- what is it? Because you know, the 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 tentacles of the Second World War are still being felt to this day, and they have such they have such huge ramifications on what has happened in the world ever since. It seems extraordinary that you wouldn't that, that at school you wouldn't bother with teaching about the progress of the Second World War and what actually happens, uh, and particularly in Germany, it's just weird to me. I just can't understand why you wouldn't teach it. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, we went up to 1939 again about three or four times, I think. And in, in my mind, like most of the stuff that we did at school was like Martin Luther, then the French Revolution, and then the Nazis, um, and then we we jumped sort of straight from 1939 to. Uh, the end of the war and you know we looked at things like Potsdam and, and the and the divide and and all of that and and the atomic bombs for some reason was another is another huge obsession um the dropping of those you don't do the war you don't you know you don't do anything about the, the war in the pacific or any any context to it it's just and then one day Truman decided to to drop the uh, the bombs on Japan and, and you deal with that and the and the and the sort of you know consequences of it, but you're right and I think the one of the main reasons I would say is still a certain snobbery about um, military history that there's always there's even though the but, Second but, but, World but it's absurd it is absurd to suggest that starting the Second World War is military history. No, I agree. You know, it, I think it, it's economic that's... history, it's social history, <laughs> yeah. it's political history, it's everything. It is history. Yeah, no, I completely agree. The only aspect of that that is dealt with is the Holocaust, um, and again, there isn't a the context of the Second World War isn't given to it. This is something that occurred to me, I'd say, at university, you know, because they, they just don't deal with the, the connection there between the Holocaust and the and the Second World War either. It's kind of just like it's the continuation of the policies in the 1930s, 
but but the actual war of course has a huge bearing on it and vice versa so you know that it's for some reason you're, you're right it is completely uh taken out of this narrative and, and dealt with as a side story but is, do you think that's a legacy of because after all uh, 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 you know certainly in the historiography here a big part of it is is trying to separate out the Nazi war, the, the Nazi war from the German war, if you want, and so the idea of the good German, that the, the the clean Wehrmacht, the old the old idea of that that's been that's been entirely sort of uh, debunked. Do you think it's a legacy of that as a, as a way of a way of kind of separating off um, th- that end? For, because after all, if 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 um, colonizing the east and uh, all that sort of stuff is just a traditional german war aim you don't want to investigate that idea too rigorously because then you're uh, you're you're investigating ideas of german nationhood and what it is to be german and where did germany come from in the first place and and how do we explain who we are now again you know you're back there again you're back in that that conundrum yeah. it's like a massive circle yeah yeah no i think yeah that might be a might be might have been an issue i think mainly in the you know in the beginning sort of 1950s 60s 70s where you know you can't really tell i think that would have been tricky you would have had to literally tell children you know what their what their fathers were up to like 10 20 years ago but then again and again you need to divide that into east and west i think because in the in the east it was actually dealt with and the crimes of the wehrmacht were in in their ideology a, a direct result of you know the cycle of you go from capitalism to imperialism to fascism to to genocide in some sort of natural progression in the, in the minds of yeah. you know a, a sort of eastern yeah, yeah. socialist so the wehrmacht in a way was a, a natural sign of how the from the crimes of the first world war they'd moved on in this sort of natural cycle of events up to to that and so the second world war was actually uh, dealt with i think more thoroughly in in east germany but under this ideological umbrella that look this is what happens if you follow capitalist ideology yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i would i would say we don't really investigate who what our national um you know questions of nationality really are that thoroughly here we we tend to try and shy away from them and and there's the there's a fuzzy idea of a britain that includes everyone because that's an that's an easier idea than actually getting bogged down in who everybody really is <laughs> or you know if, if that especially if identity politics is the thing that sort of because that you know there's that to talk about too, which is a new the the, the 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 current way of looking at things. I wonder how that plugs into German sense of identity now. Are you more Bavarian than German? Are you more uh, are you more a Brandenburger than a you know? Uh, are you even Prussian anymore? Because that you know Prussia got vaporized, didn't it? I mean, it, it's 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 so interesting, Katia. We're going to have to have you back on. <laughs> it's as simple as that. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about this. Um. Uh, Ah, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you all again soon. Thank you, Katya. Well, thank you. Cheerio. Cheerio.